0: In the following live session recording, Claude King leads the session Return to Me, a spiritual process for church revitalization. Plateaued, declining, and lukewarm churches need a spiritual revitalization, not just a cosmetic fix. The listener will examine a new tool and biblical process to guide churches to hear and respond to what the Spirit is saying. Let's join Claude now. Um, well, it's a privilege for me to get to be with you all and um, I'm grateful for the privilege of being in Georgia. It's always encouraging for me to be here and um, I, I guess you guys know this, but about 10% of Southern Baptist Convention members are in Georgia. And so there's a significant uh, portion of our convention represented here. and. Um, I want to share, uh, share some uh, this message with you, return to me. Um, I've subtitled the conference a spiritual process for church revitalization. Um, my own church um, went through a, uh, it's a long story so I don't want to uh, go into the details, but we had a long tenured pastor followed by a very short tenured pastor and we lost 300 people in the short tenure. And uh, we've been through an 18-month church revitalization process uh, with uh, Steve Holt, who's the head of church revitalization for Tennessee Baptist Mission Board. He's been our transitional interim, and um, I had the privilege of being the chairman of the pastor search committee, and God called us a pastor quickly compared to many. And uh, Steve Gaines' son, Grant, is our new pastor, and we're thrilled. And I'm especially thrilled that uh, we don't have to meet on Monday nights anymore. (laughs) Um, But uh, Steve's really helped us with uh, examining ourselves, and we we've been through a real healing process. It was over a year before we even uh, appointed the search committee because we knew we need to heal from some of the wounds and deal with issues. So we've been doing that. But as I had a meeting with Mark Clifton a number of years uh, a year or two ago. Uh, Mark has written a book called um, "Reclaiming Glory," and the idea that uh, churches that die are a really poor testimony to the community of who our God is. And uh, and so he he's working to help replant churches and do some things like that. We. We talked, but he said we really need a tool to put in the hands of a pastor that can help, that he can use to help guide his church through a process of revitalization, and begin to pray about it and, and think about what I could do. I know that there are lots of books out there nowadays on church revitalization, but um, and, and I'm not familiar with them, so I I'm sure I'm not speaking. Um, from a knowledge of all that's being taught out there, but there's a spiritual process to revitalization that's different than all of the logistical things we can do. We can write a mission statement, we can deal with core values, and we can come up with a vision statement. We can clean up our, our uh, building and get, get it uh, presentable to the community, and we can do a lot of those kinds of things that can can help a church as it seeks to reach out to its community. But the uh, the essence of church revitalization is a spiritual process. And if the heart of a church and the heart of the members don't change, then we're gonna probably continue the same trajectory that we're on. And uh, as I talked with Mark, I'd never thought of it quite this way. I know Southern Baptists are losing uh, anywhere between 800 and 1,000 churches a year. And, uh, and Mark said that means that Essentially, 10 percent of the Southern Baptist Convention are on hospice care, and before long, unless something changes, in the next five years, 10 percent of our churches will die, and we're having to start new churches to just try to keep up, and we're currently not keeping up. And so um, I begin to pray about, and I, I've, because I worked with Henry Blackaby on the message for Fresh Encounter. God's pattern for revival and spiritual awakening—that has really been at the heart of my ministry for 30, um, 30 or more years. And as I've worked with pastors in churches, uh, I've seen that uh, God can fix things. And um, I, I have become uh, what the Scripture describes as a prisoner of hope. Uh, Let me begin there. If you uh, have your Bibles and want to turn with me uh, to Zechariah, chapter 9. I don't know if you all are aware of what God's doing in Bartow County, Georgia, up around Cartersville, but um, many years ago uh, we took a video crew and we interviewed pastors, different denominations, in Bartow County about what God was doing. Uh, One of the things Bartow County did is they re-dug the wells of Revival, and uh, Bartow County Cartersville is where a lady named Lottie Moon was a school teacher, and it was at uh, First Baptist Church where she sensed God's call to go to missions and became uh, the missionary to China that we name our Lottie Moon Christmas offering after her. And what she did the same year that she felt called to missions, another guy named Sam Jones, who was an evangelist. He was an attorney, alcoholic attorney, and he got saved in 1873. And God used him. He was described as the Billy Graham of the South, uh, not the Billy Graham, the D.L. Moody of the South. I'm wrong, wrong century. <laughs> um, he was an evangelist, and lots of people came to faith under his ministry. And um, But anyway, they they looked at their history of revival in the county, and God started doing things in their churches. And we were going and interviewing pastors, and, and even the video crew was getting blown away with the stories of what God was doing. And in on the van from one church to another, I remember hearing a message from, that uh, David Bryant, David Bryant uh, started Concerts of Prayer International. Uh, he's written a book, Christ is All, and has a ministry really focused on, on that, uh, that theme. But uh, he preached a message one time that uh, really connected with me. It comes out of verse 12, Zechariah 9, verse 12. Return to your fortress, O prisoners of hope, even now I announce that I will restore twice as much to you. And um, he talked about the fact that prisoner of hope doesn't seem to make sense that those two words would go together. Uh, you think about prisoners, they're the hopeless ones. You know, they're, they don't have any hope because they don't have a future. But a prisoner of hope is a person who's captivated with hope. They can't get away from being full of hope. And as we were interviewing these pastors, I'm thinking, I'm one of those guys. As bad as things are in our churches, and as many sad, sad stories I hear, I know God can fix those things. And I am full of hope. And I've heard their stories, and I know the scriptures. I know our God is able. But uh, as I begin to look at this passage later, verse 11 and uh, in the HCSB, now the CSB, uh, and I, I'm reading from the NIV, but it translates one of the words differently. As for you, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will free your prisoners from their waterless cistern. Or I will rescue your prisoners from their waterless cistern. Now, waterless cistern may ring a bell for you. In Jeremiah chapter 2. God says, My people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the wellspring of living water, and they have dug for themselves cisterns, broken cisterns that won't hold water. And you just get the imagery of this. Here is a, an artesian well that's just bubbling up with fresh, clear, clean water, an unlimited supply. And God's people rejected that and instead they did for themselves and they dug out a hole in the ground and plastered it and they're hoping to collect water in there when it rains and uh, the cistern is cracked and broken and it won't even hold water and they're dry and thirsty and uh, in Zechariah it describes that we can become prisoners to our waterless Cisterns. And a waterless cistern is a substitute we create for the presence of God. And instead of having Him and His power and His presence at work in us, we settle for a substitute that's dry, leaves us dry and thirsty, and, uh, and we're prisoners to the waterless cistern. Anybody in the room feel like that? Sometimes in our churches, I've talked to so many pastors, uh, and and they're horrible stories of what they're experiencing. And sometimes I want to ask them, do any people in your church know the Lord? (laughs) Because sometimes they can act awfully wicked. Well, um, if you're a prisoner in a waterless cistern, I've got good news for you. Zachariah's message would be available for us today too, but listen it says because of the blood of my covenant with you. Now let me ask you a question. What kind of blood of the covenant did Zachariah know about? Animal blood. We've got a better blood. The blood of Christ, the new covenant, the blood of the new covenant. And, uh, and God would say to us today, Because of the blood of my son, the blood of the new covenant, I'm not going to leave you in that waterless cistern you've become imprisoned to. I'm going to rescue you from that waterless cistern. And if you'll return to your fortress, that's a reference to God. Return to your fortress, I'll make you a prisoner of hope. Want to be one of those? Full of hope? Overwhelmed with hope? Knowing with confidence. God... God can fix what we're experiencing and then God makes this promise. Even now I announce to you, I'll restore twice as much. Uh, I believe that God's wanting to revive His church in our day. I know He does. He cares more about the health and vitality and fruitfulness of our churches than any of us possibly could. He gave His own son's life for the sake of our church. He purchased us for Him. And um, I remember T.W. Hunt. I worked with T.W. on the Mind of Christ message. Um, and I also I was the editor for Disciples Prayer Life. That goes way back. Probably some of you weren't born yet when I did that one, but uh, T.W. tells the story, and I remember him telling this in Prayer Life, but I've I heard it a number of times. Um, in 1979, God started. Uh, he began to study the mind of Christ and begin to develop the message. And he taught it at a Sunday school class, and they loved what he was teaching, and they asked him to come back a second time. And word started spreading, and TW started traveling all over the country on weekends doing a Mind of Christ conference. It was an eight-hour conference in churches, and people would travel to follow TW to hear him teach this message. And um, I remember when I worked with Avery Willis, we wanted to get TW to let us do a Mind, uh, a mind of Christ workbook, and he wouldn't let us do it because he thought we would corrupt it. <laughs> and uh, But I remember a time when he, he called me up and he said, Claude, I'm going to be teaching the Mind of Christ in Bryant, Texas, and if I fly buy you a ticket and fly you down there, would you go with me just so you can hear it? I would never heard him teach it in a conference setting, so I agreed to do it. and. We got back to the Baptist Sunday School board and he pulled up on the roof and he said, if you were going to do a life course with this, what would you do with it? And we began to talk and I realized T.W. was getting old enough, he was getting close to retirement, and he realized, if I die, this message dies with me. And uh, so we began to talk about the mind of Christ message. Well, anyway, that's T.W. Hunt, a profound message that's sim. Uh, significantly impacted hundreds of thousands of people. But uh, in 1983, uh, TW's wife Laverne, in the spring of the year, said, uh, I think I've got a lump in my breast. So she went to the doctor, they did a mammogram, uh, they got the word back, we've read the mammogram, everything's clear, go enjoy your summer. In the fall of that year, she said, TW, I think it's growing. They went back to the doctor, and uh, indeed it was growing. They did a biopsy. They looked back at the x ray from the mammogram and realized they misread the x ray. The cancer had been there, but by now it had spread into her lymph system. She had to have radical mastectomy, chemotherapy, radiation. They were doing everything they could to try to kill this cancer in her. And um, she got so debilitated by all of the treatments that uh, T.W. said there were days she couldn't even get out of bed. She was so weak. And uh, T.W. is a brilliant man, but uh, when it comes to doing the housework and buying groceries and laundry and all that stuff, that was not his his uh, best suit. And he talks about the fact that uh, one day he was in Kroger uh, buying groceries, and he couldn't read the labels. And he realized it was because of the tears. And he said, I gotta get out of here. Nobody's gonna understand me crying over the groceries in Kroger's. Uh, He he taught his seminary class uh, shortly after that. And he said, I did the poorest job I've ever done in my life. I was so ashamed of the quality of my teaching. And he said, I went back to my office and I locked the door behind me and I fell on the floor and shattered into a million pieces. And he said, as I lay there weeping before the Lord, God came to me and said, T.W., you teach the mind of Christ, but there's something about my mind that you don't know. And I knew you couldn't possibly comprehend my feelings about this without my taking you through this experience. You are broken because of the sickness of your bride, but I too have a bride. And she's very, very sick. And I knew that you couldn't comprehend how grieved I am over the condition of my bride without my taking you through this experience. T.W. knew the the passage in uh, Revelation 19 where the scripture says in um, the latter part of verse 6, Hallelujah for our Lord God reigns. Our Lord God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory. For the wedding of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. Fine linen, bright and clean, was given her to wear. Fine linen stands for the righteous acts of the saints. Then the angel said to me, "Write. Blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. At the wedding supper of the Lamb, it says that the bride of Christ will have made herself ready. If I were to ask you, uh, in in the scriptures, here it says um, that uh, she will have made herself ready. She'll be dressed in bright linen, clean. um, And it stands for the righteous acts of the saints. We're told in uh, Ephesians 5, Uh, Paul writing to husbands, he said, "'Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ loved the church "'and gave himself up for her to make her holy, "'cleansing her with the washing of the water of the word. "'He did this to present the church to himself in splendor, "'without spot or wrinkle or anything like that, "'but holy and blameless.'" If I were to use those words, would that describe the church as you know? Holy, blameless, without spot, dressed in fine linen, bright and clean, uh, practicing righteous acts. Let me read a list of some possible blemishes. And let me ask you to do this. Just listen to this list and see if one, of, one or two of these pop out. As Those are big ones. In the churches you know, anger, bitterness, disobedience, a lack of faith, greed, impatience, judgmental spirit, prayerlessness, rudeness, self righteous, unforgiving, unloving, uh, suffering from addictions, covetousness. Divisions in the church, foul language, human centered, an insensitivity to needs, laziness, pride, selfish ambition, sexual immorality, a controlling behavior, unconverted membership, apathy, dishonesty, drunkenness, gossip, hypocrisy, jealousy, envy. Addiction to pornography, racism, selfishness, stinginess, unholiness, fill in the blank. Pride, I think, is in there. I don't know if, yeah, I got pride. What, um, as you listen to that list, what are some of the blemishes that you see are common in the churches you know? Pretty much all of them. That's sad, isn't it? Any that stand out to you that those are big ones. You don't have this doesn't have to be autobiographical for your uh, church. (laughs) Apathy. Apathy. Disobedience is early on that list. Disobedience? Human centered. Human centered? Idolatry. Idolatry. Unconfessed sin. Okay. Needless to say, the churches are blemished. T.W. felt like when he described that experience in his office and the days that followed, I'm not sure exactly the sequence of how all that came about, but he believed that God's calling on his life from that point forward was to help get the bride ready for the wedding supper with the Lamb. Scripture says the bride will have made herself ready is he worthy of a clean, pure bride? If you're a parent and you've got a son that's going to marry a wife, would you want a harlot? Would you want a, a, a dirty, unkept, um, rude, crude, immoral woman for your son? Uh, God is worthy Christ is worthy of a bride that's prepared. And I, I really believe that we, we, when we think about church revitalization, a part of what we need to do is think from a kingdom perspective. What's God's interest in this? It's not just that our church will thrive or that we will reach more money or we can keep the doors open to keep doing churches. we've been doing it. There's a much bigger picture here. There's an eternal picture here where God's got a plan for the church for eternity. He's got a plan for His Son, and the day's going to come when Jesus is going to return to the earth and take His bride, His church, and they're going to spend the rest of eternity with Him. There's going to be a marriage supper with the Lamb, and uh, he's worthy of a clean, pure, spotless, holy bride. And a part of what we need to understand is that we have a part in helping the bride of Christ that we are related to get ready. So I want to talk to you about uh, church revitalization and a spiritual process that may be helpful to you. I've given you a handout and. I'm in the process of writing a book. I'm um, going to call it Return to Me. The subtitle will be God's Invitation and Promise to His Church. God's Invitation and Promise to His Church. Um, That comes from Malachi chapter 3, verse 7. Let me begin with verse 6. Malachi 3, I the Lord do not change so you, O descendants of Jacob, are not destroyed. Ever since the time of your forefathers, you have turned away from my decrees and have not kept them. Return to me that's the invitation and I will return to you. That's the promise. Um, I had a pastor in Wellington, Texas called me one day and um and he said uh, Claude uh, got my got your phone number from TW Hunt and I wanted to call and ask you to pray for my church and if God tells you anything call me back. Well, I'd never heard a request like that before, and so I said, "Well, tell me about your church." He said, "Well, I, I serve at First Baptist Wellington, Texas. Our county has about 3500 people in the county and uh, about 2500 in the town and he said um our church runs about 250 and he said i've been here for many years but over the recent years we went through a study of experiencing god and he said people began to understand that god wanted a personal love relationship with them and we started getting people began to cultivate that love relationship with their heavenly father and that was really meaningful to us and we understood that God wanted us to join him in his mission he said when Fresh Encounter came out we went through God's pattern for revival and spiritual awakening and as we studied God's pattern for revival I think, let me um, some of you may not be familiar with that but that's the pattern that God's the one who's on mission in this world and he's chosen a people who were not a people to make us his people and um when he's got a people rightly related to him, spiritual harvest is a natural byproduct. But we tend to depart from him. When we depart, he disciplines us out of his love. He, we cry out to him for help. He gives us an invitation, repent or perish. And when we repent, though, he revives his repentant people, restores them to life and vitality. So that's kind of the pattern they had studied. And and uh, Johnny Tim said... Uh, uh, we went through Fresh Encounter, and he said, um, "We think we've experienced revival." He said, uh, "This church is different." He said, "People love each other." Uh, he said, "I have people every week come and saying, Pastor, are there any? Uh, is there anybody that has needs? I can help meet their needs, and they're they're wanting to give and share." And he said. Uh, Even the deacons love their pastor. He said, I've never been in a church like this before. And he said, "Uh, we think we've experienced revival. But when we look at God's pattern, we see that if we've been revived, we ought to see a spiritual harvest. And we're not seeing a harvest. And he said, we've been praying about what to do. And as we've prayed, God's raised two issues that we think we need to work on. One is that we need to be a people of prayer and two, we need to see a spiritual harvest. Would you pray for my church? And if God tells you anything, call me back. Well, I had some time that day and I just went to the walking track in my neighborhood and started walking, talking to the Lord. And I just had this download of ideas. And so I wrote two pages of notes and I called Johnny back and I gave him all these ideas. And I'm thinking maybe they'll pick one of those. Well, Johnny called me back a couple of weeks later. He said, here's what we're gonna do. It was the springtime of the year. He said, we decided to clear our church calendar of anything that would distract us from a focus on prayer and harvest. Didn't mean they canceled their ongoing meetings, but that became the focus of their attention. Um, they went through a study for six weeks of a study on prayer. Uh, today, it's uh, it used to be called In God's Presence. Today, it's Pray in Faith. It's a study I wrote with T.W. Hunt on prayer and it teaches the basic things about prayer and so they started with sixth graders all the way through senior adults in Sunday school they all went through this book on prayer well the way it's designed you get T.W. Hunt 101 during the week to learn about prayer and practice prayer in your own life and then you get together for a small group meeting and you have a prayer meeting and you pray and uh, just think about the boldness of uh, having prayer meetings in every Sunday school class every Sunday morning for six weeks. They decided to do that. And so they uh, went through this six-week study on prayer, and then uh, beginning the day after Easter, or beginning Easter Sunday, uh, the Jewish people beginning the day after Pentecost, they count up 50 to Pentecost, and they uh, they take an omer of barley. And take a portion each day they count up 50 portions of barley to get to Pentecost Sunday uh, or Pentecost and uh, so uh, we put together a prayer calendar and and part of the reason for this Pentecost what what happened on Pentecost a spiritual harvest that was a, a spiritual awakening when God filled 120 with His Holy Spirit. They walked into the streets. Peter preached, and 3,000 people from all over the known world got saved that day. And the world's never been the same since that day. And so uh, that's a time of spiritual harvest. So they're praying toward Pentecost for 50 days. And what we did is we, we put together a little calendar with a scripture for each day. Uh, mostly scriptures, the Jews would have been reading, a lot of them from Psalm 119, about God's Word and obedience and those kind of things. But we put together the calendar, and then um, and they, we asked every family for 50 days. This may not be your practice, but for 50 days, we'd like to ask you to get your family together as frequently as possible, every day if possible. Read the scripture talk with each other about what that means to you. and Most of them were brief scriptures. It wasn't a long passage. Talk about what it means. Start making a list of lost people in your circles of relationships and start praying for them for the 50 days. And so um, family started meeting. Pastor called me in in the middle of that and he said, Claude, I had a 72-year-old couple that had been married most of their life and they came to me and said, Pastor, this is the first time we've ever prayed together as a couple. But they started praying and started listing lost people and praying for lost people because they're, they're, they're learning about prayer and they're praying about a harvest. Well, another idea I'd gave, given them, uh, Andrew Murray has a story in um, his book called The Prayer Life where he tells about in South Africa at a time where religion was at a low ebb One of the pastors, as he was reading Acts, he realized the New Testament church prayed for 10 days, and then the Holy Spirit fell, and there was a spiritual harvest. So he called his church to 10 days of corporate prayer meetings. So they met for 10 days of prayer, and following the 10 days of prayer, they saw an increase in the spiritual harvest. So the next year, they calendared it that way. They had 10 days of prayer, and they scheduled evangelistic meetings following Pentecost Sunday. And uh, Andrew Murray writes 50 years later. He said today, for 50 years, that's been the common practice in South Africa. You have 10 days of corporate prayer, and you have your evangelistic meetings following Pentecost Sunday. And so I would suggested that to this church, and they decided we'll do that too. So they take their church through this study on prayer. They're praying for lost people. They have 10 days of corporate prayer. Uh, One of those days, they had a missions team that was going to Russia, and they uh, gathered around them. This would have been 1995, so it's not been long since the Iron Curtain had come down and they had a a time to pray over them they laid hands on them prayed for them sent them off to russia Uh, another night they got together they invited all the baptist churches in the county to come together and pray and they prayed together another night they invited all the churches of all the denominations in the county to come together and pray one night they had prayer walks around town and prayer drives around the county just praying on sight within sight and so they did that. They had cottage prayer meetings in homes. They Just different kinds of things. And then they invited me to come Pentecost weekend to celebrate uh, a time of solemn assembly with them. Pentecost, you know, is a prescribed solemn assembly. And so um, I got there and I found a church that had learned to pray. Uh, they had had some intercessors in their history. They people knew the two or three they knew those women were women of prayer and uh but now a church was learning to pray seriously and uh, i talked to the chair uh, the lady who taught sunday school for sixth grade boys and she said claude the week that we did the responding prayers where we learned a confession and praise and worship and thanksgiving She said, I I turned those boys loose to pray and they prayed for 30 minutes praising the Lord. And she said, I've never heard little boys pray like that before. And I realized even the sixth graders are learning how to pray. I was with a group of young adults in a cottage prayer meeting during that weekend and they would surface a request and just prayed all around that and then they'd surface another request and pray all around that, another request and pray all around that. And time flew by. Two hours later, the leader interrupted us, and she said, Hey, we've got to go to church tomorrow. We're going to have to quit and go home, get some rest tonight. Uh, But I saw people who had learned how to pray. And uh, the next morning, Pentecost Sunday, the church was on the local cable TV uh, station, and so it had a hard end at the end of the service. And they started off with worship and stuff, and then they started sharing testimonies, and people got carried away. And they were telling about what God had been doing over the course of these last uh, few months. And, and um, by the time I got up to preach, there wasn't time left to, uh, to preach a sermon. So I shared a scripture, shared a few words with them, and then gave an invitation. One little boy walked down the aisle. He'd gotten saved that week. But it was like popping a balloon. Because they were expecting an explosion. They, For months, they've been preparing for this. They're expecting a spiritual harvest. They're believing God's going to do something unusual and one little boy. And uh, they, as much as we ought to rejoice, the angels are, <laughs> over that one, they were discouraged. I mean, it was heartbreaking in, in a sense. But, Pentecost is a day to feast, and so we had dinner on the grounds. Everybody went to lunch. And uh, during lunch, a lady who had heard the TV program that morning on local cable TV got ready, came to the church, found the pastor, and she said, I want what those people were talking about. Mm. It was the testimony. She said, I want that. And he led her to the Lord. That was the first fruits. Three months later... I called Johnny and I said, I just wanted to call and get an update, how things going. He said, uh, Claude, we can't go back to the old way of doing things. My pe- that's what my people are saying. He said, uh, that missions team that we commissioned, they personally led over 400 people to Christ. And, um, and he said, uh, we've been involved in prison ministry for years, but in the last three months, we've seen 225 inmates come to faith in Christ. And he said, in our little town, the lost people we've been praying for, 25 of them have come to faith in Christ. Well, uh, I was telling that story in Colorado years later, and a a retired pastor was there, and he interrupted me, and he said, you don't know the rest of the story, do you? And I said, well, I don't know. What's, What's the rest of the story? He said, that was not the only part of that missions team. We had a bunch of churches that were cooperating from Panhandle of Texas on that mission trip. And he said, "When he was a pastor of one of those other churches. He said, when we heard about the praying going on in Wellington, Texas, we believe that God answered their prayers in all of our behalf. He said, we saw 10,000 come to Christ on that mission trip. Here was a church And uh, if you were to ask the pastor, when did the revival break out? You can't pinpoint a day. It wasn't an explosion. It was a people who had departed from the Lord, and they began the process of returning to the Lord. And it was over a period of time, but as they began to repent of sin and get right in their relationship with the Lord and begin to love the Lord and love the lost people like the Lord loves the lost people. God accomplished a work and there was a time that came that God says "Uh, now's the time. I'm ready. And he began to move. And all of that happened in a short period of time. i share that story with you because to me that's what church revitalization is about. If you've got a church that's living at a low level of spiritual vitality. And that may be evidenced just by apathy. People love each other, but we're not reaching anybody and we're having funerals. That may be your church. That's one kind of church. But you've got other churches that they're in in constant conflict and battle and people are fighting and they're doing things and there's just this animosity and people leaving mad, saying, I don't want to ever go back to that church again. Those churches... Whatever the condition of our church is, if we will begin to see God's standards and begin to return to His standard, God can restore life and vitality to a church. I want us to... Um, i got to keep an eye on my time. Do you ever feel like this? In our culture, it sure feels like this, doesn't it? Uh, American culture is trying to do everything they can to stamp out Christianity shut down the businesses that Christians own. And we don't want you speaking in the public square. We don't want you involved in their politics. All kinds of things that the culture's doing. But it's possible that... How many of you are pastors? Would you raise your hands? Okay, bunch of pastors in the room. It may be that you as a pastor, you're right there and this is your church. And you're trying to lead them in a godly fashion to serve and love the Lord and people are running their opposite direction, and you're facing headwinds and opposition and that kind of thing. If that's the church you're serving, what do you do? Well, I want to talk to you about some foundational things that we need to to do. Uh, Number one, I I think is an issue uh, in our churches. A lot of our people have joined what I call the Christian Reserve Corps. Reserve me a place in heaven when I die. Don't ask me to do anything till I get there. And they don't know that the call to follow Christ is a call to be on mission with Him. Now, I, I, I know I don't have time for this, but I want to stop right here, and I want to do one activity with you. If you have your Bibles and want to turn to that's okay, just leave them. Um, verse. Turn with me to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians is a book about the church and what God's done for us and what we ought to act like, how we ought to function as a church body. Uh, I want to read to you a passage of Scripture, verses 11 through uh, 16. I want you to listen listen for what God says through Paul what God says the church ought to be as the body of Christ with Christ as its head. Okay? Just listen. It was He, that's God, who gave some to be apostles and some to be prophets and some to be evangelists and some to be pastors and teachers to prepare or to equip God's people for works of service or ministry so that and by the cunning and craftiness of men and their deceitful scheming. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will in all things grow up into Him who is the Head, that is Christ. From Him, the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work now forget about your church forget about your history based on scripture what's God's design for a body of Christ to look like what's it supposed to look like unified okay they need to be unified unified in the faith following Christ they need to follow Christ who is the yeah, head yeah, yeah, yeah. of his church. Cooperatively working. Okay, they're cooperatively working. Uh, who, who's doing the work? Saints and members. Everybody. Every member is doing its part. What's the role of the leadership? To equip, to, equip the to equip the saints. To do their work of ministry so that the whole body does what? Ourselves, ourselves. Grows up into maturity that's going to look like Christ. the fullness of Christ. Uh, Y'all covered a lot of them. There are others in here. That's what the church is supposed to look like. Now let me ask you, what would have to change in your church for it to look like this? What are some of the things? uh, We've got a tradition of churches, even as Southern Baptists, and how we do church doesn't always reflect that passage but uh, what would have to change in our churches, do you think, in order for us to look like that? What's one thing? Selfishness. Okay, we'd have to put away selfishness. rid of independence. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, people that are... Get rid of the independence. We, we're interdependent. our we have so many that they say that we been. Okay? We've got people in the Reserve Corps, or they, they've decided to retire, <clears throat> even though they're physically or mentally or emotionally able. What else is going to have to happen? We have to hear what the head is saying, know that it's the head saying it. Okay? And uh, not only know it, but then what? Do it. Do it. We need to surrender to let, let Jesus be head again. What else do we need to do? We've got to disciple. We've got to equip them so they can okay, do the work of ministry. We we need to go after holiness. That's not in this particular passage, but it would certainly be a part of it because we're going to grow up into the likeness of Christ. That's going to be a part of that to get there you gotta start speaking the truth in love so people take correction we speak the truth in love and we we're willing to receive the correction and we're also concerned enough about those people we love them enough that we will bring the correction when that's appropriate we grow up in the full knowledge of, uh, of God of Christ well when you look at that you know we we need to do the equipping we need every member serving. Now let me ask you a question. How many service positions do you have available? You know, I don't know what your church is like. A lot of people and I don't know that there's any statistics current that do this. You know, how many people are actively involved in serving in your church? And some people say, "Well, it's maybe 20%, maybe less than that." How many positions Could you put those people into employment for the cause of Christ with your current church the way it functions? And and you see, uh, I I don't know what your response would be, but the the reality is with the way we do our church, we don't need everybody to do the work. We just need people to fill the pews. Uh, You attend, and you can enjoy, but you can be a spectator in the stands, and we've got all these other people that are on the field playing the game. Well, uh there comes a point in time where that gets boring. And it's no wonder that a lot of our people are apathetic because they're not in the game. They don't have to they don't have to have an encounter with the Lord. They don't need a fresh word from the Lord for me and how I'm living my life. They're content for other people to do those things and Uh, And the truth is this, if the church is just about what happens in the four walls, we don't need everybody to serve. But part of the challenge for us as a church is to begin to ask the question, what does God want us to be as the body of Christ? We start praying and saying, head, what have you got on an assignment for us? And he said, well, the culture all around you is going rotten. It's, it's decaying, it's collapsing, and uh, I really had in mind that you all would be salt of the earth, and perform a preservative impact on the culture, but you all are huddled in this castle, protecting yourself from the rest of the world. I need you out there in the world to be salt where this decay is happening, so you can have the preservative influence we need to start thinking about what God wants to do with his people and, uh, and if we can help people understand you know, you may have been to some churches where they have a sign on the parking lot as you're leaving uh, you're leaving the church to the mission field you're entering your mission field and if we can help a church begin to realize that the, the mission of the church is not what happens on Sunday morning that's the worship celebration and that's for the body and it can be a time for people to see and experience God and come to know Him, but the primary work of the church is all during the week, as we're salt and light all over our community to reach people for Christ. So, one of the what I've just done is asked you to take a look. I've got a clicker here somewhere. <laughs> uh, take a look at. Uh, I mentioned this pattern to you, and I don't have time to go into detail, but part of the pattern is this. When uh, when we cry out to God because of our condition, God sets a plumb line alongside His people. Uh, and um, let me see if I've got a... I don't see it. Um, I, I did this for another class, but uh, when God sets a plumb line, Amos chapter 7, in Amos 7, God... Uh, Amos says, I saw God standing by a wall that had been built true to plumb with a plumb line in his hand. And God said, Amos, what do you see? He said, I see a plumb line. God said, I'm going to set a plumb line alongside my people Israel. Now what was going on is that God had built Israel as a straight perpendicular wall. But uh, the problem was the people had departed from the Lord. And here's the issue. If all of us have departed from the Lord... And we're comparing ourselves to other people who've departed from the Lord. We say, well, I'm not quite as good as that one. I'm way better than that one. We're doing just fine. Let's keep going like we're going. It's not until you see the plumb line, the standard of what God expected us to be, that you find out how far we've departed from what we're supposed to be. And uh, God's Word becomes a plumb line for us. And what I just took you through is just a a, a glimmer. If we can allow God's Word to begin to speak to us in fresh ways and go to Jesus and say, Lord, would you reveal to us what is your design for the church to be? What's the standard? What do you want us to look like? What do you want us to act like? And then, under the, uh, the speaking and the work of the Holy Spirit, He has a job for us. His job is to convince us of sin and to convict us of righteousness. Uh, he shows us the standard. He shows us how far we've missed the mark. And, uh, and then we can begin to say, God, what would you have us to do to restore the standard that you intended for us? And so part of what I'm doing in this uh, new book I'm writing return to me. I'm going to be introducing you to, I call it a church renewal process, uh, where as a congregation, you can take passages of Scripture and corporately go through a passage like Ephesians 4, and you include some things from 1 Corinthians 12 and Romans 12 about what it means to be a body and the giftedness of the body and begin to ask the question, God, what's, what's the body supposed to look like? And then you take a very honest look at yourself and ask the Holy Spirit, would you show us where we are in comparison to that standard? And then you begin to ask the question together. If this is truth from our head, if this is truth from God, what do we need to do differently to live like that? I believe that if we will begin to repent, return to me, God's made us a promise. What's his promise? I'll return to you. And so uh, part of what I'm proposing to you is that we begin to examine ourselves according to God's plumb line with the request, Lord, show us how we have departed from you. And then would you enable us to restore, uh, to repent, return to you? Uh, You remember this passage in Malachi 3 uh, that I read from, Malachi 3? Um, And you pastors are familiar with this, but uh, that sets the stage for uh, the people said, well, how can we return? It's like, we don't know that we've departed. What do you mean return to you? you, We're your people. And God says, "Will a man rob God? Yet you rob me." But you ask, "How do we rob you in tithes and offerings?" And then He goes through that that list. Well, let me ask you: Would that be an issue in your church? I don't know what the church's averages are, uh, Southern Baptist, but I think it's like two and a half percent of our income uh, comes into the church in tithes and offerings. What that tells you is, if you got a church that's robbing God. <laughs> And he says, uh, you need to return to me. And what do you mean return to you? Well, this would be one of those passages where God says, well, why don't you start there with your finances and do what I've told you to do. Um, So uh, let me, uh, uh, time is short and I'm gonna have to hurry. Let me just share some other things with you Uh, because one of the questions is this, and I, I realize what I just described to you. Look at the scripture, what's the plumb line? and then guide your church to examine themselves carefully honestly under the leadership of the holy spirit and then decide to return to being what god wants you to be and um, my guess is your first thought was well you don't know my church they're not going to do that here's the issue in deuteronomy chapter 30 verse 17 it says if your heart Turns away, if your heart departs and you are not obedient or you no longer obey, and if you're drawn away to bow down to other gods and worship them, then here's what I'm going to do to you. Uh, In Deuteronomy, we see the sequence of a departure from God. We once were the people God created us to be, perhaps, or at least closer than we are now, and we've departed from the Lord the departure begins with a shift of our heart where we're no longer uh, obeying the way we ought to obey we don't love the lord like we're supposed to love him now let me ask you the question how, how much are we supposed to love him all our, hearts. all our heart soul mind and strength and if we've gotten distracted from our first love for the lord it's going to start showing up in our behavior and i mentioned to you this a leaning tower of pisa that i don't know if i told you that but this is a visual illustration of Amos 7. The leaning tower is 179 feet tall, made out of marble. The walls at the bottom of the tower, 13 feet thick, marble. Tower at the top, 6 feet thick, marble. So it's a heavy tower. Uh, let me ask you, where's the problem with this tower in Pisa, Italy? Is the problem with the walls that are crooked at A or foundation at B? Well, the foundation is the problem and if i were to attach a huge crane and pull it into place and did nothing else and then i let the pressure off what do you suppose is going to happen to this tower well it's going to fall right back where it was maybe keep right on going if i don't solve the problem at the foundation everything i do to the walls are going to be a temporary and unsatisfactory fix uh let me put spiritual terms on this based on this passage the love relationship is the foundation that's where our departure starts that's where the restoration begins and the symptoms up here at A are a lack of obedience or disobedience or violating the commands of the Lord so if you've got a church that's not obeying the clear commands of the Lord they're not being obedient there's immorality in the church and divisions and bitterness and unforgiveness all of these blemishes we talked about that's sin if that's true of your church those are symptoms and you can eat work yourself to death trying to bring enough pressure to bear to get the people to straighten out their behavior uh, and and we also see that uh, they're drawn around or uh, drawn away to bow down to other gods. Most of our members would not see themselves as practicing idolatry, but there's an idolatry of the heart God describes in Ezekiel, and Jesus and the Scripture mentions several things. We can't love God and money at the same time. We can't love the world and the things of the world and the love of the Father be in us at the same time. We can't love what we have and what we do and love God at the same time. You can't love father, mother, son, or daughter more than me and have the kind of love you're supposed to have for the Lord. And so um, we've got people that are practicing spiritual idolatry. They're in love with the world, the things of the world, and uh, you know, if you were to go to your church today, I don't know what the idols of the heart might be for you, but I can tell you in Murfreesboro, if you were to go to your church and say, folks, If you're so busy with your kids' activities in sports that you don't have time for the Lord and for church, that's become an idol of the heart. Some of you would get fired if you started trying to fight that one. There are all kinds of things. Social media is captivating hours and hours of people's time these days, and all kinds of issues that we're dealing with and I want to suggest to you that the, the starting place for revitalization's got to be a return to the heart of the heart. It's a heart problem, but there's some some good news for us. In Jeremiah chapter 24 and verse um, verse seven, God says, "I will give them a heart to know Me, that I am the Lord; that they will be My people, and I will be their God." For they will return to me with all their heart. Can you imagine God speaking that over your church? I know they don't love me like they're supposed to now, but I'm going to give them a heart transplant. I'm going to give them a heart to know me. And if they'll return to me, I will be their God and they can be my people. That's what God wants to do for us. He's standing ready and willing. But uh, Andrew Murray made a statement. I can't remember if that's... uh, I don't know if I've got that in here. Uh, There's my plumb line message. Um, Yeah, here's Andrew Murray's statement. A revived church is the only hope for a lost world. That's our only hope. And... um, there's, a, there's the Malachi 3, um, 7, return to me and I'll return to you. Here's the other quote by Murray I wanted to get to. Uh, God's faithfulness in the fulfillment of His promises waits on our faithfulness in the fulfillment of His conditions. So God's promised. He's made some wonderful promises. Return to me, I'll return to you. I, I'll give you a heart to want to know me so that you can return to me. God's willing to fulfill His promise to make us full of life and vitality. He wants that more than any of us want it. And and He wants a pure bride ready for His Son when that day comes. But God's faithfulness in keeping His promises is waiting on our faithfulness to fulfill the conditions. And so the real test is going to be, are we willing to challenge our church with the conditions the Lord has laid out and ask them, let's, let's decide to return to the Lord. It's going to have to be a, it's a heart issue. Um, in, uh, let me just tell you a little bit about the return to me message that I'm trying to put together. Uh, these are the categories uh, for returning. I've got an introductory session uh, week of content called "Return to Me," and um, and I deal with uh, a lot of things. I started off with the uh, the story from T. W. Hunt that uh, we need to be a, we need to prepare the bride for the wedding supper with the lamb. It's not that we can get healthy, so it's more pleasant to be around our church. That's not our objective. There's a bigger objective. And uh, it's not that we can reach people or pay our bills. It's that we will be the kind of bride that Jesus would be thrilled and pleased with. And uh, so we want to do that. Uh, I I talk about the need to return to the Lord. I'm going to touch on that one in a minute. Uh, The second thing is really the foundation here. And so I've got a week of material on returning to our first love. If we don't get that one right you can hang up everything else it's not going to work it'll be a temporary fix at the best if we don't return to our first love and even though I've got this designed in a week of uh, you know five days and a week's process if it takes you a year to get that one right we need to spend the time required to return to our first love Uh, But after we've loved God and as I've been trying to think about what do we need to do as a church? So many churches that I see have problems. They come in one of these areas. One is we need to learn to love each other and the truth is if we love God Then we will love each other and if we don't love each other, it's an indicator We don't love God so love fix the love of God first and then let's start demonstrating our love for one another uh, Oscar Thompson in his book Concentric Circles of Concern defined love this way, love is meeting needs. Love is meeting needs. And he says that we, uh, he, God's given us families and the church to practice our love on. And uh, I, I was with um, Bill Eliff uh, in Little Rock, Arkansas, the Summit Church Uh, that he pastors, they had a member of their church died of ALS. Tim Grissom was a friend of mine. His wife was diagnosed with uh, Lou Gehrig's disease. Uh, By the end of her life, somebody from the Summit Church was in their home 24 hours a day, ministering to her and their family and taking care of Tim's needs so they could maximize their time together as long as she lived. I went to her memorial service, and Bill got up and he talked about Nisi and Tim, and he said, "I don't." It was a relatively new church at that time. He said, "I don't know why God gave us such a a, a challenging assignment to sacrificially love like we have," and I was waiting for the answer, and he didn't answer the question. <laughs> and afterward, they had lunch for the out-of-town guests, and I talked to to Bill, and I said, "Bill." Uh, I I mentioned Oscar Thompson, and Bill had had him as a professor. And I said, Oscar says that God gave us the church to practice on. And I said, I think what God may be wanting to say to this young church is, I have allowed you you all to experience how sacrificially you can love other people. And now I'm wondering, would you be willing to love a lost world like that so that they could come to know my son? And uh, Bill was sitting down. He jumped up, clapped his hand, he said, that'll be my sermon for Sunday. <laughs> uh, it was Christmas time, and the previous week he preached on Jesus was the incarnation of God to show us what God looks like in the flesh. And he said this next Sunday I was going to preach on the fact that we are the body of Christ, and we are the incarnation of Christ for our world, and he preached a message and gave me this illustration in his message, that our life is like a PVC pipe. Uh, And this is the parable of the PVC pipe. Um, All by itself, a PVC pipe can't do anything. But, if you connect a PVC pipe with a source of water on one end and things that can use or need water on the other end, This pipe functions as a conduit through which that water can flow, and the pipe accomplishes what it was created for. And that's my alarm to start wrapping up. Uh, God's intention for us is that we would be connected to God, the source, the wellspring of living water on one end, and that His living water would flow through our lives and splash all over the people we're in relationship with And God has seen to it that every soul was created with a thirst that can only be satisfied with living water. And God's plan is that our lives would be the conduit through which His life and love would flow and splash all over the people that we have relationships with. If we've got a dirty clogged up pipe because of sin, idols of the heart, we need the a rooter job to get rid, of, get rid of the clog so that our lives are clean and pure through which God can flow. If we've got broken relationships or we're holding on to bitterness and unforgiveness, we need to get rid of that uh, cap on the end of our pipe so that the living water can flow freely. And if we will do that, God's looking for a people through which His life and love can flow to touch a world around us. Um, I'm glad I gave you a handout because I'm not going to get to all of it. We need to surrender all. We need to let Christ be Lord of our lives, and He's not interested in a part, but all of us. We need to be. Uh, we also need to acknowledge and restore Jesus to be the head of His church. Lots of churches I uh, am acquainted with. Their problem is that they've got one. Or a group of people who've decided that they are the head of the church and when people don't follow their leadership they throw their weight around and make life miserable for everybody else and if we're going to be a healthy body of christ we have got to acknowledge that jesus alone can be head of his church so we need to do that we need to. Uh, I'm sorry. We need to be transformed into Christ's likeness. We need to be holy, clean, pure. There are a lot of things we need to do to uh, to be transformed so that we look and act and think like Jesus. Uh, and then we need to join God's mission. Uh, God didn't create us just to meet on Sunday mornings for church. He created us to be on mission with Him to carry out a redemptive work in society around us and part of the reason why North America is on a a rapid freefall morally and spiritually is because the church isn't doing her job. We need to begin to function the way God intended us to function and uh, if we will be his um, redemptive instrument in our world, Christ, has already paid the price to purchase salvation he's looking for a people through which he can work and then ultimately we want to glorify god and tell the next generation of the mighty deeds the lord has given to us i've given you a list of some of the faith builders a lot of these are video clips on my blog you've got the i think i've got on there um, my uh, blog address is it on here it is uh okay good in the beige blocks up there at the top the gray block um a lot of these uh, stories are on there but I, I i intend them to be faith builders to encourage you that god can turn your church around i've seen him do it in other places that looked really dismal um and um some of this is uh, still fluctuating but i'm working on getting this out and you'll notice at the bottom of the page uh, I don't have time for all of that. Sorry. Uh, Let me mention this. Uh, I did develop a book. I mentioned it in a couple of my other classes. Come to the Lord's Table is a tool. And I believe that one of the ways we can help people return to a love relationship with the Heavenly Father is around the Lord's Supper. We love Him. Why? because he first loved us and God demonstrated his love for us and that while we were yet sinners, what did he do? Christ died for us. I believe that if we will take seriously our need to prepare for and celebrate the Lord's Supper in a worthy manner, if we will judge ourselves and examine ourselves, we won't come under God's judgment. And I I believe the Lord's Supper does a couple of things. One, it helps the church restore our love for the Lord And that will start getting reflected in our obedience and our love for others, our love for lost world, the presence and power of the Holy Spirit in us as we witness. All of those things are shaped by that. But it also is a regular opportunity for the bride of Christ to get ready for the wedding supper with the Lamb. And I believe if we'll do that regularly, uh, the bride will be ready to meet the Lamb. Um, we're, it's time for uh, for me to let you out so we can get to our other session. Uh, I, this is a, a story. And let me just point you to a, a video blog. If you'll if you go into my video blog and look up um, homage ceremony, H O M A G E, and I think um, well I don't have that on your uh, handout. Uh, the homage ceremony was a ceremony that started taking place in the ninth century where uh, a king would bring his vassal subjects serfs, to pledge their loyalty and obedience to the Lord. And they would get on both knees, put their palms together, place their hands inside the hands of their king and say these words, I'm your man. It was a significant pledge, though a brief one. It meant I belong to you and whatever you ask of me, I will obey, including if I have to fight for you, I'll fight for you. I have to die for you, I'm your man. Call on me. And uh, Christians who had to do that began to think, we've got a king in heaven who deserves our loyalty and obedience far more than this earthly king. And they began a new posture for prayer. Do you recognize that? That began to show up in church practice in the 12th century AD. But Christians, what they would do is get on their knees and realize, I'm entering the very throne room of heaven, where King Jesus is seated on the throne. And he's holding out nail scarred hands to me, saying, Claude, today I want your life, but not part of it. All of it. And they would pray, I'm so guessing something like this, King Jesus today, I'm your man, I'm your woman, my time is yours, my life is yours, my career, my ambitions, my plans, and then my dreams, my finances, my My family is yours. My health is yours. My reputation is yours. My very life. Command me. I'll obey you. Would that make a difference in your prayer life? What would happen if your entire church began to surrender to letting Jesus be Lord of everything? And begin every day, Lord, I'm your servant. Whatever you want from me. However I can serve in your mission work command me, I'll obey you. I really believe that if we can begin to take steps in that direction, God's got the plan, the resources, the power to revive this church and restore life and vitality. Let me pray for you. i got to let you go. Lord, uh, I pray for these, especially the pastors. Lord, would you help all of us to do our part to return to being the people you've created us to be, you've called us to be restore our own love relationship with you. And I pray, Lord, that we will be able to lead the churches we influence, to be able to see them, to return to you and meet your uh, requirements so that you will be free to return to us and restore life and vitality. I thank you, Lord, that you're able, you're willing, you're looking to us. Show us how to return that we might experience new life and vitality in our churches. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for coming. If you're interested in being a field test, I'm not sure what I'm going to be able to get LifeWay to let me do, but if you're interested, send me an email, and I'll put you in a file and notify you as soon as this is ready, and we'll see what we can do. Thanks.